Christmas is coming. Christmas is coming, Charlie Brown said. But I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. I just don't understand Christmas, I guess. I like getting presents and sending Christmas cards and decorating trees and all that, but I'm still not happy. I always end up feeling depressed. Do you relate to Charlie Brown? I know that I can. Everyone is telling me that it's the most wonderful time of the year, but I don't feel the way that I'm supposed to feel. The preacher is telling me that Christ has come, joy to the world. And he's coming again, but I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. Where's the peace and where's the joy? See, to celebrate Advent and Christmas is to embrace a holy tension, a cognitive dissonance, a cognitive dissonance, a paradox. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. It's a note held waiting for resolution. Do you hear it? I know that Burl Ives heard it as he sang the song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Have you ever paid attention to those lyrics? They're, um, despite his uh, deep baritone voice, they're not as cheery as they sound. They don't actually sound that cheery to begin with. But he said, and the bells are ringing, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. See, Advent and Christmas create a tension between what we believe to be true and what we see with our eyes, which means that Advent takes faith. See, when we look at our world and we look at our circumstances and even within our own hearts, there is much, much reason to despair. And yet, God tells us to rejoice. The Apostle Paul says it this way in our passage, Rejoice in the Lord always, because the Lord is at hand. Advent tells us that while we are waiting for Christ to return, don't wait for joy. Wait for Christ to return, but rejoice now. In fact, because Christ is coming, we must prioritize joy in the moment, in the presence. So how do we do that? We all want joy, but where do we find it? I'm going to look at two points, the reasons we don't have joy and the reasons that we must have joy. To understand why we don't have joy, we have to look at um, we have to look at why. What are the reasons why we don't have joy? Why is it so difficult and elusive? Well, verse 4 tells us, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, you have to read the lines, read between the lines a bit, so hang with me. You don't tell people to do something they're already doing unless you think there are good reasons to give up. Unless you know that there are reasons why they may stop doing what you're telling them to do. And, and Paul is telling them 
to rejoice, which means that he knows that there are good reasons that they would give up rejoicing. Some of them are here in the text. Uh, to begin with, Paul is writing from prison. He's in chains. The church is being persecuted. How can the kingdom be growing? How can I rejoice in the Lord if, if it appears that the, the spread of the kingdom is actually being halted? On top of that, there are false prophets and false preachers that Paul is warning them about. On top of that, there's conflict in the church, the place that's supposed to exhibit the peace of Christ and community. In verse 2, we see evidence of that, of a disagreement. On top of all that, there are just the normal sufferings and sorrows of life that Paul is, of course, acquainted with. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. Verse 6 even talks about the anxieties that he expects the Philippians to experience. And while I mention anxiety, I just want to say, I, I don't want this sermon to come across as uh, an easy solution to anxiety and depression. Because the world is not the way it's supposed to be, many of us suffer the consequences of that in our psyches, in our minds, in our bodies. And so while I think this is all relevant to chronic anxiety and chronic depression, I don't mean to say that if you just listen to these words that you won't experience anxiety and depression anymore. I think there's a host of ways that we treat that in this world and uh, what Paul has to say here helps us, but it may not cure us of chronic anxiety and depression. But even if we don't struggle with chronic anxiety and depression, we all suffer from the anxieties of life and the sorrows of life. There are a thousand reasons to weep. At every turn, the curse is at work, breeding violence and betrayal and destruction, and it seems limitless. And as Advent people, we acknowledge that there are reasons to weep. And sometimes those reasons keep us from rejoicing. Conflict in our home, comparing ourselves to others, social media, pain and sickness, unemployment, loneliness and isolation, all of these things scrape away at our joy until it seems that there's nothing left. But maybe it's not the suffering and the anxiety of life that's keeping you from rejoicing today. See, maybe you hear this talk of emotional life and it confuses you. I think we have to recognize that Christians in our traditions have often had a complicated relationship to emotions. On the one hand, there are Christians who have almost canonized their feelings and their emotions, and they look to their feelings to make moral decisions for them and see their feelings almost as the whispers of the Holy Spirit telling them how and when to act. And they overplay emotions. Other Christians, I think, are skeptical of emotions. They downplay them. They've been taught to fear them and to suppress them. I've got a Far Side comic in my office. I think Doug Harley gave this to me because he sends me Far Side comics often. Um, but it's, it's a comic of a barn with a giant lock on it. And uh, there's a father pointing at it, and he's telling his son, look, this is where we keep our feelings. If you ever get one, bring it out here and lock it up. <laughs> Sometimes Christians relate to our emotions that way. We think that there's something to avoid and suppress, and 
not to listen to. But here's the thing. When you come to the Bible, you have to throw out both of those options because the Bible is full of people expressing every emotion under the sun. And get this, it's not just humans. God, too, is an emotional God. We see him expressing um, jealousy for his people. Love. He is a joyful God, at times ecstatic in his delight and songs that he's singing over his people. Other times he's grieved and even angry. The best metaphor that I've heard for expressing the biblical relationship to, to emotions comes from a pastor named Pete Scazzaro, who spent years um, locking his emotions up in the barn. And he said, this, said it this way. He said, emotions are like children on a road trip. You don't let them drive the car, but you don't put them in the trunk either. They're to be cared for, listened to, tended to. That's the biblical approach to emotions. And there's no way to cut it. Joy is an emotion. Joy is an emotion we, that we are meant to tend to in our lives. Paul is, an inv- is inviting us to this emotion of joy when he tells us twice in verse 7 to rejoice. But I think just as there are two ways that we um, misunderstand emotions, there are two ways that we misunderstand joy. And they're similar. The first is to downplay it. Um, maybe you've heard someone say, maybe a pastor say, God doesn't care about your happiness. Happiness is worldly and secular. Happiness is what the world has, but joy is this different thing that Christians have. Or maybe you've heard that happiness is somehow immature and worldly and will lead you astray, lead you into sin. Christians should be solemn and serious. But the Bible does not make those distinctions. I looked up just in the English Bible, the word joy and words like joyful associated with it. And in the Bible, it's joy is mentioned over 200 times. If you look at rejoice or rejoicing, it's mentioned another 200 times. And that doesn't even count words like gladness or happiness or blessed. This is a book that is from from cover to cover is a book of joy. This is a book of joy. And here's the thing. The Bible does not distinguish between joy and happiness. A pastor named John Piper put it this way. He said, if you have nice little categories that joy is what Christians have and happiness is what the world has, then you can scrap those when you come to the Bible because the Bible is indiscriminate in its uses of the language of happiness and joy and contentment and satisfaction. If you don't like John Piper, Charles Spurgeon said the same thing. And Jonathan Edwards said the same thing. In fact, the, the place that we see this distinction between joy and happiness as joy is what Christians have and happiness is what the world has. You know where that came from? It came from a guy named Oswald Chambers who wrote a devotional called My Utmost for His Happiness. We can trace that as the beginning point where Christians stopped talking about happiness as something that God wants for his people. Now, there's a difference in how God defines happiness and what brings us happiness and how we experience it. But we, tend, we, we can tend to downplay joy as Christians. But there's another way to misunderstand it, and that is to overplay joy. Sometimes I hear Christians 
take this very verse, hear this command to rejoice, and they'll take it to mean that we should never be sad. Some people will even say that it's a sin to be sad when you've been saved, so true Christians can never be sad. But to do that is not only unbiblical, because the Bible does command us to even weep at times, and we see Jesus weeping, we see the Holy Spirit being grieved, but it's also... It's also impossible because what it ends up creating is a community of people who are trying to fake joy. And what they end up with is often shallow and superficial, a glibness, a glib joy. And this passage is not telling us to do that. It's not telling us to fake joy, but it is inviting us to foster it. So how do we do that? But we have to understand some of the reasons for joy. Some of the reasons that we must prioritize rejoicing. Look again at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? Well, we might expect Paul to say it this way. Rejoice to the Lord. Or rejoice before the Lord. Or rejoice because of the Lord. But he doesn't use those prepositions. He says rejoice in the Lord. And whatever else it might mean, it certainly means that joy is relational. We experience joy in a relational way. Because of the work of Jesus on the cross and the Spirit giving us faith, our relationship to God has been fundamentally altered. We are no longer opposed to God or against God, we are now united to Christ and believers are in Christ. So everything that we do when we live and breathe and have our being is done in Christ, shaped by that relationship of being in the Lord. And the Lord is a joyful God. See, we are meant to rejoice because God is joyful. So when we rejoice, we rejoice in Christ. We rejoice in the Lord. Now, the Old Testament has various expressions that get to this. I think of Nehemiah 8. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Or Psalm 16. In your presence, speaking of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. Or literally, in the face of the Lord is abundant joy. See, we have to to have joy. We have to realize to rejoice in the Lord. We have to realize that we serve a joyful God. Do you see God as joyful? When you think about the face of the Lord, do you imagine a smile on his face? Or do you imagine a severe and serious look? See, this is how our joy is able to transcend circumstances and dispositions of life. It's because our joy is found in relationship to God. It's a borrowed joy. Jonathan Edwards, I mentioned him earlier, he put it this way. He says, the happiness Christ gives to his people is a participation of his own happiness. But I'll go all the way to the source. This is the way Jesus said it. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, 
that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full, abundant joy. We have to ask, what makes God joyful? What lights up his face? Scripture tells us that his people delight him. His people light up his face. That is his joy. It's the joy of redemption that took Jesus to the cross, the joy that was set before him, the joy of his redeemed people. That's what brings him joy. And so for us to rejoice in the Lord, we rejoice in this relationship of being united to Christ, seeing him as joyful and responding to his joy by seeing joy develop in us. See, we can't have joy in every circumstance unless we're looking at the Lord. A Scottish pastor put it this way. He said, for every one look at sin, you need to take 10 looks at Jesus. I'll add to that. For every one look at your circumstances, we need to take 10 looks at Jesus. We need to see the smile on his face, the joy that he has in us as his people. For every one look at your bank account, take 10 looks at Jesus. For every one look at the COVID case numbers that are issued every day at 4.30, take 10 looks at Jesus. For every one look at Facebook, actually don't look at Facebook at all if you can avoid it because it is a thief of joy. But if you do, take 10 looks at Jesus. We've got to look to the joyful God if we want to have joy in this life. See his smile. See him smiling at us because of us. And we will light up. It's just like these wonderful children in our service that light up when they see their parents. That, that see their parents enjoying them. That's our relationship to God. It's a father who delights in us. And so we delight in his delight of us. Do you believe the words of the benediction? Do you believe that the Lord God, creator and redeemer, is smiling upon you? Do you believe that he smiles when he thinks about you? Do you believe that you light up his face and give him joy? If you don't believe that, it's going to be hard to find joy in this life. A lasting joy. See, when our circumstances steal our joy, when we don't feel the way that we're supposed to feel... We must foster our joy by looking at a joyful Savior. And let me point out that, that we don't just do this in relationship to God, but in relationship to one another as well. In verse 1, Paul calls the church his crown and joy. See, because he's in Christ, he's able to see other saints who are in Christ, and he's able to take joy in them. Do we do that here at CPC for one another? Do we take joy in one another? Are we a high joy or a low joy community? Are we high joy or low joy in our worship, in our community groups? Are you high joy or low joy in your marriage, in your family? See, when we have the relationship of joy, of being in Christ, we actually are able to share that with one another and foster joy in one another. We must look to Jesus. That's where joy begins, but there's more. We can rejoice always because God is at hand. 
Verse 5 tells us the Lord is at hand. This is Advent joy. Advent joy is remembering that we are living in between the times or uh, the space in between, as Sandra McCracken calls it. We are living in a world that is plagued by sin, death, and evil. We see it every day in our own hearts, and we've already talked about some of the anxieties and ways that we see that. But this is not the way it will always be. Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. See, that is the only distinction between the Christian's joy and the world's joy. It's that whatever joy we have in the world is temporal and fading, but the joy that we have in an eternal God is one that will last forever into his kingdom coming. In other words, um, we've got to put our eyes on the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. In every sin and sorrow, we've got to say, this is not the end. You do not get the last word. COVID does not get the last word on us. The coming kingdom gets the last word. You may remember in March, we stopped worshiping because of this pandemic that we're in. Let me say it a different way. We stopped gathering to worship uh, in our building in March. We didn't stop worshiping because we, we have continued ever since then. Um, but we stopped meeting in our building. And some of us, many of you joined in, we, we fasted and we prayed. And um, we, one of the things we were fasting and praying for was a vaccine. Uh, for God to, to give wisdom and skill to scientists and researchers to bring a vaccine. And by his grace, he did. And just last week, we see it rolling out. Even here in Santa Barbara, vaccinations being given out. And yet, restaurants are still closed. People are still getting sick. ICU beds are still filling up. And many of you know someone now who's fighting for their lives. Uh, maybe not in Santa Barbara, but elsewhere. What's the deal? See, we're living in relationship to the vaccine in between the times. The vaccine has come and yet it's not been rolled out and distributed. And what Paul is reminding his people here is that this is Advent joy. It's living in between the times. Jesus came, he died, he rose again, and he's coming again. And we're living in between what he achieved on the cross and through his resurrection and what he will bring when he comes again. And Paul says, rejoice now because the Lord is at hand. He will come again. Do you imagine all the things that you're going to do once you get vaccinated? The, the parties, the restaurant, the reckless physical touch, hugging people. In the same way, we've got to imagine the kingdom to come. The kingdom, when we behold the Lord face to face, when, when, we, when we all see Jesus, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we feast at the supper of the Lamb and every day gets better than the one before. And as we do that with our sanctified imaginations through the Spirit, it brings us joy. We know that a new day is coming and it gives us joy now. Because the Lord being at hand doesn't just mean that um, that you will rejoice someday. Paul says rejoice now because the Lord is at hand. That means that, that he is coming someday, but he is near to you even as you wait. You have access to the Lord as you wait. 
which means that, that every good joy and everything that you experience in this life is but a foretaste of the world to come. It's not that everything is misery until that day. It's the Lord is near to us and blessing us and giving us good gifts now. Which means that we must rejoice because the Lord is good. Because we have a good God. The Lord is at hand. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. What's he talking about? He's talking about worship. We worship God because he is good and worthy. Because he's at hand, he is accessible to us even now. We can approach his throne with confidence because of the blood of Jesus. And so we worship him today. What we're doing here today and all the ways that we worship publicly and all the ways that we worship God privately, we are calling God good and worthy. See, worship cultivates the soil where joy can grow. Gratitude, thanksgiving, as Paul mentioned, these are essential ingredients for joy because God is good and he gives us good gifts. He even gives people who don't worship him good gifts and joy and happiness at times. And so as his children, we give him thanks for all the good things that he gives us. And in that soil where where gratitude is being added day by day, joy can grow. Joy can come out of that and rejoicing can come out of that. That's one of the reasons why we have a great Thanksgiving before we go to the Feast of Communion every week in our liturgy. But before he tells us to be thankful, Paul actually tells us to bring our anxieties to the Lord in prayer and supplication. Do you see what he's doing here? I think this is really important. Even though he is telling us, um, he's telling us that even though we are called to rejoice, it doesn't mean that we have to ignore our reasons for sorrow. Bring those to the Lord as well. Bring your anxieties to him because he cares for you, as the Apostle Peter says. Needs and cares and concerns do not have to be left at the door of the church, and they don't have to be left at the door when you come to worship the Lord. You don't have to put on a happy face to worship the Lord. You can bring your anxieties and your supplications, your needs, all the things that that make you um, groan and lament in this life. And you know what he's not going to say? He's not going to say, nope, you're bringing me down. I'm tired of your complaining. I'm tired of your tears. Can you just rejoice every once in a while? No, Paul says, I expect you to have anxieties, and I'm telling you what to do with them. Take them to God because he is good, and he will hear your laments. He wants to, as Eugene Peterson said, he is a God who concerns himself with the distress of his creatures. He is a God who invites you to bring your distress and your anxieties to him. Like a good friend, he's eager to hear it. He's good and you can trust him. You can call him when you're in trouble, in other words. And when we do that, 
We are given a peace. We're given the peace of God. It's not a peace, as you'll notice, that that takes away the anxiety, but it's a peace that transcends. It's a peace that surpasses our understanding. It's a peace that guards our hearts and our minds until the coming of the Lord. Here in the space in between, isn't God good? Isn't he good? When we see that and experience that through worshiping him, we create the conditions for joy. See, for the Christian, joy and sorrow can coexist like housemates in the heart of the Christian, just as they were in Jesus, who was called both a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, and the one who was anointed with the oil of gladness. And when we come to God and worship, we're able to bring both of them And something often changes in us as we do. And I don't think anybody in America gets this as well as the black church. Because they have known sorrow upon sorrow. And yet, if you've ever worshipped at a predominantly black church, you know that it is full of rejoicing. You walk by the doors and the doors are rattling off with joy. Mahalia Jackson um, said it this way. She said, when you sing gospel, you have a feeling there's a cure for what's wrong. And I would say that I would take it even further. When you sing the gospel, you have a feeling that there is a cure for what's wrong. See, in our worship and prayer and supplication and thanksgiving and and in our liturgy, we are gospeled. We are given the story of the gospel as it plays out in front of us. And when we we experience that, we are reminded of the gospel, that you are more broken than you thought, but yet in Christ you are more loved than you ever imagined because of his death, resurrection, and his coming kingdom. When you trust that your sins are forgiven simply because the Lord delights in mercy, you will rejoice in that. You will rejoice that your name is written in the book of life with Euodia and Syntyche and Clement and Paul and Timothy and all the saints that have come before. And you can say, take the world, but give me Jesus because he's he's bringing a new world. Even when it doesn't look like it, even when I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. Charlie Brown may not have gotten it, although Linus gave a stirring rendition of, of Luke 2. But I do know that Burl Ives got it. Because as he sang, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, the verse goes on, Then rang the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Rejoice this Advent, this Christmas. The Lord is at hand, and I will say it again. Rejoice. Amen.